Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Andy Kroll, who is a CTO of CoverageBook, a conference organizer for Brighton Ruby, author and speaker. Andy joins us from Brighton in the United Kingdom. Andy Kroll, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? You dare say it. I think probably the most important thing is that code's read much more than it's written. So like the readability of it. And I don't just mean like beautifully quaffed perfect method names and all that stuff, which is great, or like comments or you know, whatever, you know, whatever your poison is. I mean like the, the weird stuff that you do should stay and look weird. That's my favorite programming hack for myself is like, I'm gonna make this bit look really awful. I'm gonna leave like a horrible variable name in here, or I'm gonna stick some junk at the top of a Rails view file or any of that sort of stuff. As an aid memoir to either go, I didn't know how to solve this at the time. You shouldn't worry that you didn't know future Andy. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my my personal go-to fix for myself. Can you think of a recent weird example that you might have come across that whether you'd written it or not, that you're like, oh, this is weird, and but it's good that it's here in the way that it is? Yeah, I mean, I, I've just taken on a couple of juniors at work. They sort of said, this partial... What's this bit at the top that looks like Ruby inside these funny little squiggles? And I was like, well, those are the variables that we depend on in this particular partial. And I wanted to show you where they came from. I wanted to show me where they came from originally. And like, we didn't quite know how to structure this, this partial. It's a bit unwieldy. But the unwieldiness is then front and center in the first five lines of the file. It's, you know, it's, here's a weird setup object we use to define this thing. That's sort of like in a halfway house between two different, you know, the dreadful old state and the wonderful new state that we haven't ima- yet imagined. So here's this halfway house where everything looks a bit ugly. And but here's here's where that variable comes from. Interesting. Is that is that more like a comment saying this is where the this instance variable or no? It's literally like I'm assigning a local assigning a local variable inside the top of the template to make myself know that I didn't ever fully solve this in the past. <laughs> That's an interesting example there because, you know, in the in the rail space, there's tends to be kind of a push against that. You see that and you're like, why are you setting things that are kind of like maybe too far down in the stack necessarily? But was that for things like to for presentation layer specific things that you're trying to like, or it's just like, well, this actually gets called in lots of different places. We're having to, we would have to define it in several controller actions or. Yeah, it's just like we didn't want to do the full rewrite of the stack of partials all the way down to here to get this to work the first time, or it was a bug fix that we had to ship quickly. And, you know, the next time someone's back in here, they should look to fix it. It's not, you know, this is not an architectural style that I am proud of, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, it's more a case of this is a thing that we should look at. And if you can work out when you're back in here, how to get rid of that, that would be awesome. But it's just like, here's the weirdness and put it front and center and keep it there. Do you, you know, didn't want to get too far down in the, the Ruby on Rails rabbit holes there. Have you felt in your, your take on when to introduce using partials has changed very often. Or, like, I feel like there was a period where 
we kind of maybe overuse them a little bit because we were thinking that they would be reused a lot and then they don't always end up being reused in different areas. So, yeah, I think, yeah, it's kind of a coverage book where um, we're now a view component shop. Um, so we've taken GitHub's big view component project and our front end focused developer is a big advocate of that. And he um, built a gem called Lookbook that is sort of like the the way that I think lots of view component based architectures are sort of previewing their components and doing the development of those things. So we were relatively early to that. And that's mostly been a success, like working out how to use components is, you know, it's a different strategy for every team. And it seems to be working mostly well for us. Whilst we sort of, we have all these view components and stuff, but we, you know, we still make use of partials and we still make use of even the odd helper gasp. So yeah, that's primarily how we're managing our, the big mess that is Rails views. Get easily gets out of hand and you know it gets out of hand when it's components because it's just it's a lot and it's the place where your customers end up touching your work so invariably it expands in an almost unlimited way it's true it's always like this thing with you know we think about the mvc pattern and how we're using this stuff and we have all the javascript i i've not personally taken a big deep dive into a lot of more modern javascript stuff i've tended to just kind of stay away from some of that stuff. And then in my role in the company, that's just not where I end up spending very much time. But it ends up being, as you mentioned, like an area that has the most commonly interacted with directly with end users, but tends to be maybe the the messiest parts of some of our projects in some ways. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Yeah, I think there's there's certainly a sense where certainly that that was in my back end, my background is in front end. So like I came into Ruby via sort of the web standards thing in the sort of mid 2000s um so like i'm comfortable in the view but i get the sense that lots of ruby developers very much define themselves and try and leave the code at the controller level and not get involved in their views too much certainly like, i think that's a fairly common oh man i don't want to deal with that like I, I definitely don't want to do any css um so yeah that's that's where it feels i don't know it feels the it's like almost the most organic bit in that it sort of grows in a way that's unpredictable and there aren't necessarily good rules. And we're sort of developing patterns in it now. So you've got, you know, the, the view component thing comes from React. Like it's trying to isolate those individual pieces. And in, you know, classic back-end developer way, we'd like to test these properly. And we'd like to make sure that everything is defined. And there's a certain amount in which you have a little bit, you know, HTML is great because it's so messy. <laughs> it's sort of like you, you almost feel like you get your hands in it. And, you, you know, you get your hands all covered in p tags and that's that's like a good messy thing to be involved with sometimes i always think back to that era and i think in say the mid 2000s there why i felt like there was this interesting distinction was like between front end and back end developers on the project was that i'm like the front end people can spend more time thinking about how this is going to work across different browsers and then we got mobile devices that eventually popped up at some point we're like how many different things do we need to test in? So I think there was more of like, we need people that can just spend more time, be really good at that and just be like, and it's felt a little like chaos in some ways. I was like, it was hard for me to meet the front end developers that didn't grumble about projects and like, oh, we still have to support this one version of IE for this client and what have you. Can't we just make them stop using that? I'm like, I wish we could, but they're, you know, this is not the way the organization set up to 
they can't just install Firefox. But it was an interesting thing. Like I felt like, well, we can control the backend stuff. And like when I say the backend, like the model layer and the controllers, we get this all nice and well tested and just cross our fingers, everything on the front end is going to work well with the front end developers doing the, what they're good at. So it didn't make sense. I didn't believe that everybody could like can keep all of that knowledge in their head and be super great at it. The the one developer idea there was just seemed like it was very far fetched. Uh, yeah, and you get you get different elements of that, which is you get companies where there's a companies or organizations or teams where there's a very hard line, and sort of not accept it. There's almost a, like a lack of acceptance on both sides that you know the front end folks don't want to don't want to know anything about SQL. And the backend developers don't want to know anything about CSS, right? And that's like the most extreme versions. And yeah, that, and that plays out in the technology choices, even like you know that's why the, the Rails plus React stack is relatively common. It's not my personal taste uh, in building apps, but like that kind of real hard boundary, you know, almost to the point of like you can almost run them as two separate teams. I mean, I, that's absolutely no way I'd ever run a team because I think the thing is, you know, the, how it works is is the product. But, like, you do see that fit relatively frequently. Um, and that's, you know, possibly because those things are, you know, I remember from the web standards days, like, it's a bit easier to support multiple browsers now, although, you know, you've got much more variety in screen sizes. So, you know, the complexity has moved in a different fashion, but, like, you're not having to write completely separate code to support, you know, IE5 or whatever dreadful thing that made me cry when I was a much younger and better looking man. Um, yeah, I, th- I think there's, there's definitely like that hard boundary is definitely a thing. It's true. The, I'm, I'm curious, you know, just out of curiosity, what's your take on like the, the concept of a full stack developer? I like, I mean, I, I would sort of consider myself to be one because I came in from the front end and, you know, now I've written hand rolled SQL that I'm proud of, you know, that's nice. <laughs> so I think it's about knowing where your own personal limits and interest are and can you ship something useful to people based on your own skill set. Like I don't think it's, there isn't one definition for anyone like, you know, there's various people who ship things with PHP scripts, they still FTP to a server somewhere, right? They don't do inverted commas proper development, but the things that they ship are very useful. Like a flat static HTML site can be a useful product to people like a pdf can be a useful product to people um so yeah I, I don't think of it in terms of how many individual skills you have listed on your cv it's more like how useful can you make your skill set to the open to the rest of the world i'm curious about you know as you're in your role do you does your team talk about things like technical debt often <laughs> do we talk about anything else um <laughs> you know it's so easy to get three weeks away from something you wrote and uh, hate what you did um, or like be, oh man, I wish we'd done that better or we, f- we did not foresee how customers were going to use this and therefore bend the, our assumptions. Yeah, so we're, we're constantly working out ways that we can improve our understanding and then putting that into code. Like understanding how customers are actually using the thing that we built, restating our assumptions based on more knowledge. So yeah, I think we don't tend to talk about it in terms of like we have a bunch of technical debt. We tend to talk about it in it would be nice if this thing worked in a different way or this wasn't JSON or if this was a join model or if this wasn't a join model or if we stored this somewhere else or if all of these things were you know, a subclass of something else or you know, these things all kind of behave the same so maybe they should all have a similar interface. Like it, It's very much it's very organic and we have quite a small team. Um, so it's, those are fun discussions as much as they are the work. 
you know, when those types of things pop up where you're maybe questioning now that you've, you're reacting to actually to how people are really using it or, you know, your tech, cause basically most of what we're shipping when we're writing software is like, we have some assumptions or some ideas or hypothesis about this is going to work with like X and ends up being used like a Y or some flavor of X. And you're like, well, all right, maybe now that we're seeing this play out, we could probably rethink some of this stuff. Do you document those things in any way? Do you have like a, some formal-ish, you mentioned that kind of like an organic conversations that might pop up. What, what, what sort of way do you keep on that so that the team feels like those may be addressed or they might get prioritized? Or is it just when it's enough of a pain point, then you deal with it at that point? I think those discussions, you know, they sit in the air and that's fine until we're ready to work on them. Because, you know, if you, if you write down something that's, oh, I've just got this idea of how this might work. And, you know, it's a conversation over lunch or when you're trying to solve another problem and like the conversation gets sidetracked by the thing that everyone's really annoyed about or the, you know, you've, you've been pager duty twice this week for this thing. But, it, you know, we want to get finish the other feature first. So I think it's fine for them to sit in the air and we only really document them when we're about to work on them. Because like trying to like list those things, you know, we've got areas where it would be nice if we could refactor this area of the code so that it doesn't do this thing that is bad for us. Uh, we very much have a policy or sort of a headline in our team, of which is like making life better for ourselves as well as for customers. So like if I'm getting paged every night after I finished work because the psychic keys are filling up or user experience has gone wrong because the US are online and I'm in the UK, like those things don't have to last very long before as a small team we're able to go, okay, let's spend some time on this. Like how would we do this better? Where Where's the real problem? Is it a quick fix or is it a, oh man, we've got to rewrite this thing and migrate a bunch of data? Is your your organization one that kind of was founded with a technical, someone on the in the leadership team having some software experience or? It, was, well, it sort of was and it wasn't. So the product coverage book came out of an agency, a PR agency in the UK. And they Gary, who's the founder of coverage book, um, wanted to get into product. He was sort of done with agency PR, SEO, agency work. So he hired someone locally to help sort of run a mini startup thing inside the agency business. And the owners of the agency were willing to fund that. And they built a CRM because every agency's first software product is a CRM for their industry. And there was one thing in it that, you know, they tried to sell the CRM and it was going all right. And they found themselves sort of doing more enterprise sales, but that was not what they wanted to do as an organization. They wanted to be self-serve. They wanted to you know, sell software to lots of different smaller companies for like a hundred bucks a month, like have this traditional SaaS business. And one thing when they were doing the demos that people lent forward for was this this coverage book idea, which is a thing that all PR agencies, which is like proof of work effectively. It's like, we got you this coverage in the New York Times. It's, you know, we think that was a target for us. It's notoriety, your product sales then changed because of it. You know, it's that, that so, but it was the menial task that is done by the interns in the agency and takes forever. Like you can consider it like, cutting out the column in the newspaper where your product got a mention, but it's like the digital the digital version of that. Right. That makes sense. So there, sometimes I talk with developers where they don't feel like they're able to keep up with the product side of the business. That's like dreaming up all this stuff. And they're like, well, I'm just in react. We're fixing bugs, you know, doing things and like the wish list of things. It's not really our decision when we get to work with unless we sneak it in somehow, you know, like we put that into a sprint or what, however the team's organizing their, their workload. And it, based on how you're talking about it, it seemed like your team might have a little bit more like the 
there might be more understanding about the developers need to make their lives better. And that's a good thing. And the team has trust by the other areas of the organization. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we're only a team of 13. So like the development team's about half that. And the whole make life better thing has always been a thing. It was a thing in the agency before. And so the idea that the people in the agency would be beasted to like work harder to earn more money is not necessarily, you know, we aim to be profitable, but the whole ethos of the business is to make it sustainable um, to the point where like, you know, we're separate from the agency now, but the agency themselves have gone off to become a B Corp and be interested in sustainable sustainability. And we plant trees with some of our revenue and like all, all those good things. Like it's a responsibly run company, um, both in terms of like its wider impact as well as um, how we treat each other and how Gary and I plan the work that we all do. We hope you're enjoying this week's episode of Maintainable. While you've been listening, has anyone crossed your mind who might be looking for help with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon, the producer of Maintainable Podcast, would love to meet them. In fact, we've got a pretty sweet referral bonus program set up. If you send someone our way and they sign up for Planet Argon services, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And your reward? We'll send you $1,000 just for connecting us to the right person. Sounds like a win-win for everyone. Head on over to planetargon.com forward slash referrals for more info. That's planetargon.com forward slash referrals. All right, let's get back to this week's episode. What are some technical hurdles that you've encountered or needed to jump over while working on legacy code bases? <sighs> we did a massive rewrite, which you're not meant to do. <laughs> um, so we did a massive rewrite over the last couple of years. Um, and it probably started initially like sort of four years ago. So you said, um, were there technical people involved at the start? And yes, they brought in some technical expertise, but much more in a prototype way, like very good at like setting up and running prototype exercises for, you know, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, what do we have at the end of it? That kind of like sprinty kind of work. What happened then over time was with a relatively inexperienced team, obviously getting more experience, they built a product that became almost impossible to move. Like it had the main interface for customers was one massive page that did everything, broadly speaking. Um, and so it became incredibly difficult to both change the UI of that thing, but also like change the technical underpinnings of it. And so we sort of set out to just separate it all out as much as possible, but like without becoming sort of a microservices massive estate, because again, small team, that's always been the aim is to keep it relatively small and sort of have a high impact for those people who are in the business. So yeah, like we, primarily our product has a sort of user interface for creating these reports. And then there's a whole data collection piece. Um, and we found that that to be a really nice, like hard boundary where there's not huge you know there's not a vast api between those two things and one rails app can go off and do all this data collection and see apis and take screenshots and work things out and store metrics over time and all this sort of stuff and then just pass all of that information back and then it can be treated by the sort of the customer facing report building app almost like a third-party service and so that was the first thing we did was we built this thing that we call the vault where all of these url you know and it has no customer 
identifying data in it even it's just like we give it a url and it goes and does a bunch of stuff and then tells the main app about it so like that was our first thing was like cleave this giant app into because what was happening was the customer app the data collection was blocking things that the customer needed to do so the customer would be doing things and they would be using the interface and it would all slow down to molasses because this that all the, you know, they'd put a thousand urls in and we weren't built to it wasn't built to scale that level so it, it became sort of a victim of its own success from a technological perspective having a system that's doing some of a, a bunch of that gathering and not not necessarily hitting the same database or at the same yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. Yeah, we actually just inherited a project recently that's also for an agency that they built their own thing where they've got like a, a data hub system. So they call it a hub, and then we got like the, the client portal that they take care of. I'm like, yeah, we needed to separate that out because it was just the customer thing would be a little bit more brittle at times in the UX, and we didn't want to like ever have that potentially somehow break the data collection stuff that it needs to be doing all the time. So you talk about that, and like there's two 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 pieces of your system there, but being careful not to like all of a sudden just turn that into like how do you keep breaking it down to like now you've got 20 microservices doing all those things. Yeah, so it still needs to be understandable to a relatively small number of individual human brains. So like two feels reasonable, and I, I think it's really dependent. You know, I guess maybe we're doing what those Rails and React folks are doing with their front ends and their back ends. You know, to a certain extent, our data collection vault thing is the back end that powers, you know, the, the sort of the user interfacey bit, even though that user interfacey bit is like a fully fledged Rails app that, you know, you could you could imagine us buying that collection service from somebody else. But we think we think that's where some of our secret source is. So nice. I want to pivot that conversation for a bit. One of the topics I was really keen to speak with you is first Ruby friend. Yes. So for those listening and not everybody all of our listeners are in the Ruby or Ruby on Rails communities, but could you provide a little bit of, you know, provide our audience with a proper introduction to it? Oh, so I went to RailsConf in Portland in May last year. And as all these big conferences, like any big programming conferences, typically they'll ask the big audience in one of the keynote sessions, like, how many people is this their first XConf? And arguably a third of people put their hands up. And I was like, wow, there really are still even though you know Ruby and Rails isn't the new hotness anymore, there were still a, a bunch of people put their hands up as new to that conference. You know, obviously there are people who just like have never got to one and are now there, but there was enough faces that looked younger than mine that I presumed they were relatively new to the uh, to our community. And I thought, well, what's the thing that we should do to support them? And like a lot of boot camps still teach Ruby because it's a good teaching language. Um, and, you know, Rails lets you get productive quickly, like all of these good things that still appeal to me now. And I thought, well, one of the things that the Ruby community is known for is its friendliness. And so I was like, well, how can I weaponize that? And so I um, decided to launch using a static website and a spreadsheet and a and ConvertKit uh, mailing software, a, a global mentorship program where I basically hit friends of friends of friends up on Twitter and said, would you like to be a mentor for six sessions over over a six-month period for like half an hour for someone who's new to Ruby and new to our community. And the sort of response has been really terrific to the point where it's, you know, once a month I sort of half-dread the spreadsheet the spreadsheet fun of like matching people up geographically and by language and all of those things. But like people have got jobs through it. The, all the feedback I get is mostly like, it's been really great. My mentor's really friendly. It's really helped me. They pointed at me at these resources. Like it's it's been a really positive thing, and I'm just sort of through the first six months or so of it. I sort of launched it in June, 
uh, June, July, July, I think last year was the first pilot group through there. And uh, yeah, so it's about 400 matches so far. And like, I get like 40 or 50 new applicants every month. And I'm just sort of trying to work out how to make that bigger without obliterating one of my weekends every month with uh, the matching process and you know I, I deliberately didn't know what the what it was going to be so I didn't build anything to manage it other than a spreadsheet um, and now that spreadsheet is creaking at the seams so I might have to might have to rails new my way out <laughs> and, but I think it's great to you know for people listening to just remind ourselves that it's okay to learn to walk before we're, we start like assuming that, you know, the things are going to take off. You never know how that's going to play out. And so being able to like manually do that stuff. And I think that's pretty awesome. Have you thought about scaling it without more software and just have other people help with the, do you feel like you're, that's your secret sauce is you being such a good match, matchmaker? I don't think I'm a good matchmaker. I, I feel like I could, you know, a couple of scripts would probably do it to like work out what time zone people are in based on where they said they were. That would that would help me rather than me opening Google Maps and finding out where obscure American cities are. It's like, oh, oh that, that's in Ohio. Cool. <laughs> um, to try and match people up. So that, you know, the, t- the main thing about the mentorship thing is like, it's not intended to be in person. Although like, if I can put people in the same city, I will. But it's more about like, is it going to be convenient for people? Like it's, it's not a huge time commitment, but it's, you know, it's substantial and like it should be easy for the mentors to help. Like, so I, I try and encourage the mentees to come prepared and be flexible and all that, all of those good things. So like, I think it's a, I just think it's a good thing. And like, it's, I'm not sure another programming community would do it. I don't know. Maybe they would. It certainly, it certainly could scale if the, if the volunteers are there. Like that's the, that's the major blocker is the, is finding volunteers. Although I've got more mentors than I have mentees, but that's only because I'm, you know, I can go and find some boot camps and. Hopefully the plan is, is everyone who gets mentored then goes on to become a mentor. Because I think people who are six months, a year, two years out of a boot camp have so much more applicable advice to someone who's just about to leave than, say, I do with you know, nearly 15 years of Rails experience, right? Like, how, mu- how much do I know about getting a junior job? Very little other than on the hiring side. So Yeah, that's true. That, that's one of the things that we think about. In our organization, and when we're bringing in, we have we bring interns almost every quarter, and then we often find that the best people to spend a lot of time with them are our other junior developers. Yeah, the people just in front, right? And yeah, they're they're they're. It's like they can they can see themselves like in a year from then. You know, it's like oh, and like and it, but it also helps reinforce that the juniors have learned way more than they thought, give themselves credit for, and they can start to see like their own transformation. And then it's not that it stops there. Then you know we've got people will will get paired up with people across the team and stuff like that but seeing that happen like I'm, I'm also curious to you is there a certain point when you they don't no longer need a mentor themselves like i i say that as someone that filled out the form last night so i put myself <laughs> on it so i'm going to be part of your next weekend ma- matchmaking experience but maybe robbie needs a, a mentor from from time to time as well yeah absolutely like everyone needs someone to work out their shit with right like whether it's you know personal therapy or you know work therapy so yeah like i think yeah i don't think that need ever goes away i think possibly the thing that i do is i do encourage people to certainly the mentors to not feel obligated that this is their person to look after forever like this isn't a parenting relationship this is something you can do for six months and go i hope that was helpful i don't have the time right now 
or you know, I've 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 enjoyed this, or I haven't even I haven't enjoyed this. Like some people are mentoring for the first time, and they should feel able to put that relationship down, or let it get really loose, and that's fine. You know, email me if you have a specific problem, or you're 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 having a crisis at your current job, or whatever that is. But like, there's no pressure to continue that mentoring relationship because you know it's like I try and be this way in my you know my personal life as well. It's like sometimes it's okay that friendships end, and that's a really weird thing to say but you know i'm 43 years old i am in touch with some of my school friends but not all of them and there are people who you know when you have kids like you get really close with say your group of friends who have kids at the same time or people you meet at a play group or something and then you drift away because you're in different parts of the city and that's okay it's the same with work relationships as well like you know when you when you leave a job you might stay in touch with one or two people right like you don't have to maintain every relationship forever which is why Facebook got so difficult. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, it's an interesting thing. It's, uh, you know, as someone that's hired a lot of people over the years, I sometimes wish people kept more in touch with me as they've gone on in their career. I'm like, do they remember me? Am I, was I important to them? Do they give a shit about me? You know, was I just someone that gave them a paycheck? I don't know. I go through a lot of different like emotional roller coasters over the years of navigating this. And, you know, occasionally I'll reach out and try to, connect with people actually just coincidentally like yesterday like a former employee from a couple of years ago asked if i could meet up for drinks in a couple of weeks and i was like awesome that's great you know so if you're listening and i'm just putting it out there and you work for me or work for someone else say hi to people um and anyone just say hi to someone today that you haven't talked to you do think about and maybe one of the questions i want to ask you was you know given that you're kind of leading the the charge a bit with the, with this project, first Ruby friend again for people. Who has been one of the most important mentors in your life? I should probably call them and say hi, actually. Like there's a, a VP engineering, so I was at a company called House Trip. There's a guy called Paul who, who came in. I think he was sold a job and then the company basically disintegrated around him. I think he was sold this sort of growth VP bring on and you know bring up these seniors and make them great team leads and potential VPs of engineering and literally the company four weeks after he joined went through they couldn't raise money and they went through a round of layoffs and so like the team he thought he was joining suddenly halved in size if not even more halved in size more than halved in size and so I think his job changed dramatically from what he was expecting and I just learned a lot about in some ways I think there's a couple of us who sort of the structure was very flat. There was, you know, it was only like 10 or 15 engineers, mostly senior by that point. And, and he was sort of in charge of engineering. And I think there was a couple of us who sort of got close with him on a, you know, conciliary basis where like we were his, not his official number twos and we weren't managing anyone, but there were, you know, people who he lent on for what's going on with X or, you know, how does this feel in the team? Like, what's your read of everything? And like, I just learned a lot about managing small teams and strong personalities from watching him do it. And yeah, I, I, and I think he put a lot of trust in me. I, I was relatively new to the organization as well when, when all this happened. I'd only been in like three or four months when this happened as well. So like the organization had changed around me as well, but I feel like he trusted in both my technical diagnosis of various problems and also like my people radar. So I, yeah, I, I learned, a lot from, learned a lot from him. And like, yeah, I learn a lot from like my current um, Gary, my the founder of Coverage Work. Like, I learn a lot from him. Like, we've got very different skills and slightly different temperaments. And I often we play the roles of he's the one who wants to build a new feature, and I'm the guy who says no, with with a smile on my face. 
but like we have the same goal in mind and you know we can we talk honestly with each other and i think you know, there's, a, there's a mentorship to peer relationships as well i think which is a, a nice and valuable thing it definitely can be you know, one of the other things I want to talk about with community building was, you know, I'm curious how long you've been involved with Bright and Ruby. <laughs> uh, so I moved back to the UK in 2013 with a heavily pregnant wife. I didn't know anyone who, who worked in Ruby or Rails in the UK. And I was surfing the end of a startup that I started in Singapore. So I sort of landed back in the UK, didn't know anyone, thought oh, I should go to a conference because I'll meet people there and find work. And there wasn't one at the time. And so I thought, well, I'd run a conference in Singapore. So I was like, well, I could start one. And so that was both a good and terrible idea <laughs> uh, with, 18, with 18 month old twins by the time it rolled around. So yeah, I started it as a way to meet people in the community for myself, purely selfishly almost. You know, also I wanted an event that I didn't have to travel to and an event that was to my taste as well. So like, the, and the best way to do that, of course, is to do it yourself, he said stupidly um and now i'm up to this will be the the 10th year if not if not the, if not the 10th event so um yeah i'm just trying to fix on fix on a date for the summer but yeah so it, i'm trying to encourage more smaller conferences everywhere so I, in, even in the last couple of days i've heard of a couple of ones where people have heard me say this sort of thing and i've gone yeah do you know what i could do that that's not it's not that if that idiot can do it <laughs> then then I, then I can do it it's it's interesting the uh i'm assuming that's like an in-person thing as well now I mean, it has been probably did, did you have to shift anything around during the pandemic or yes it was i was i suddenly noticed ticket sales were slowing in sort of like february 2020 and i was like oh this is weird and so i I emailed the the chap who runs the ticketing software, Tito Paul, who's done events before, and that's how he ended up doing ticketing business. Um, and I was like, are you seeing this? And he's like, we are seeing this everywhere. My ticketing business is terrified. Yeah, I, I went online that year. And it was good. We did some fun stuff with it. But like, I didn't run it the following year when it would have had to have been online as well. Like, I, I'm not a massive, I like, I'm a primate who likes to see other primates in the flesh. Like, so that, that's what I'm there for. That's why I run it is, is to get people together. Because I think there is a special kind of something in the air when you get lots of people who understand what you do <laughs> and put them in a room together. I think that's um, incredibly valuable, even for the most introverted among us. I think it's a, it's a good scene to be a, be a part of. So I'm happy it's brought it back last year in person and it'll be again in person this year. We'll be back with our interview with Andy in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on social media, maybe dropping a link to this episode in your team Slack channel, or write a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, is there someone in the industry that you think I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now let's get back to that interview with Andy Kroll. Is there a kind of a best practice that you find that permeates through our community that you kind of disagree with? I, I would have used to have said lots and lots of end-to-end -end tests, like the sort of the whole cucumber era, the kind of the really, the idea that tests could be written by non-technical people in this sort of mystical, magical world. I find that, and some people like, I've got, I've got good friends who have apps where that is still a thing and they really value them and like i don't disagree with their experience but for me it's 
never been something that has helped really make really ship less bugs. Like absolutely like smoke tests around, you know, get those tests running for the most important parts of our application. Like make sure your checkout works, make sure your primary functions work, um, perhaps get some like screenshot based testing for like visual elements that you might break accidentally in other parts of the app. But most of the tests that we do are to stop us breaking stuff we don't realize in my, in my experience in the last five, five years. And even then you don't stop bugs going to production. So like having really, really slow tests that spin up browsers and exercise every single route through an application, that never has worked for me. In fact, some of the best things we've ever done is like we deleted an entire Cucumber-based test suite and replaced it with a couple of smoke tests and like the coverage only dropped like 5 or 10%, you know, because you, you exercise quite a lot with your first end-to-end test. You know, that, that resonates with me and the, you know, I'm sure there's a number of companies out there that are using Cucumber and, and, and have people in, I'm air quoting, the business side of things writing. The give, give and when then tests. Yeah. And, and they're writing these things and like, that's how they communicate as an organization with each other. Um, I can appreciate the, the desire to get to that, but in my world, in my reality, most of those products, that, that's never been the case at the comp- most of my clients. They've never gotten to that point. They have people that are like, I don't know, we need to get this stuff shipped. And then the developers make their best guess about how to do that. And then it evolves and, and stuff from, from there. And, and when you get automated tests at all, sometimes you're, that, that's actually a nice thing, but that doesn't even always happen. It's an interesting challenge we have in our community. But yeah, thanks for at least answering that question. Something I've been thinking about asking people. So you're one of my first guinea pigs. Are there data metrics that you find valuable to track with your team? To kind of like in terms of like the software delivery cycle? We don't actually, I mean, we're a very small team. So like that doesn't super help me. I think probably in a bigger team where I was a bit less in touch with the day-to-day work of people who worked in in. In, in the product team, then maybe it would be better, maybe more useful. Like, you know, I've put, I've done things like Code Climate have sort of like a delivery product, I can't remember what it's called, where you sort of measures like the frequency of PRs and how long they're open and what the time to review is and how long before they're merged. And those things just tell you what you already know, in my experience. Like you're just like, I already thought that that person wasn't quite where they think they are themselves or where their teammates need them to be. So I think... I get naturally antsy if I don't ship production most days, which is most days. Mm. So <laughs> it's like, that's a, you know, I, I really feel like that's, that's my metric that I sort of care about. It's like, is stuff getting merged? Is it really bad? Cause I've blocked production deploying for three days with my consistent bugs in the checkout, right? Like that's, I'm still shipping code and able to block, block staging and production from going out with my own ineptitude. So like, you know, that's my main, have we shipped production? Yeah, that's the one, we, that's the question we get asked every morning by the automated automated robot in our chat room, which is like, what do we need to QA to get production out today? And that's, that's our one thing that we really care about. You know, when thinking about data metrics of different teams, I've heard a lot of people kind of, well, we don't really have any specific metrics that we're tracking. We have other companies, other people I talk to, they, they rely on that because it's so important for the reporting back to, I think justifying why they have jobs. I don't know. It's just like a, you know, it's just like an interesting thing or that the team is improving something, you know, there, there, there's, there's some trending in a positive way. Cause, um, and some people need the data to help support that 
Otherwise, it becomes a subjective thing. Well, like, well, how does a team generally feel about the state of their delivery process and where should we be making changes or what do we hope to f- gain when we add another person? How do we know if we're being overworked or we're, we can't keep up? Is that just because we feel like that's the case? And it's, it's interesting trying to be analytical about this stuff when there tends to be a lot of subjective. Yeah, I, th- I think you end up, again, like it's the same as that, like I talked about, you end up finding numbers that support the thing that you feel. Um, and yeah, you know, we have we have, you know, we've got application you know monitoring, and we've got code coverage, and like those things are useful, but not as as soon as you know as soon as you measure something, like you can game it. So like I'm trying to have metrics there that I can go, huh? Does this thing I'm feeling is I feel like we're not shipping as much as we used to. I'll go and look at you know how many PRs we've merged. Like I can do that work because those things are always running, but I'm not using those to do the management of the human beings who make the software. And like at the end of the day, like you can deliver loads and loads of software, but if it's not actually useful to the people who are using it, then it doesn't matter how fast you're doing it. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so that's the, the most important thing is like the software ends up, you know, either making money or making change in the world. Whether you've got to be building the right things first, and that's very difficult to measure with numbers. Indeed. So a couple of quick last questions, and one of one of the, for our listeners, let's just imagine there's a developer out there that's on a team, and they feel like they've voiced some concerns about technical data, or there's some things that are not making their lives better, and like they've heard from their peers or whatever. Not right now. We'll come back to that later um, and address that. Maybe they feel like they've heard that a few too many times. Do you have any advice on what sort of action they could take today on how to potentially remedy that? Other than sort of glib and flippant things, not really. I mean, I think that's the intractableness of human beings making things, right? I, I don't think there is a simple answer. Like if, if your organization cannot support a healthy work environment, then you have problems in the same way. you know. And I think the only solution really is to gain enough power to change that environment or to leave that environment. Um, and I don't think those are things that you can do with specifically wicked bits of ruby code do you know what i mean like it's not you can't look out you know you can find allies you can it's all what you know you might derisively call you know politics or office politics like but politics is just a measure of soft power um, or hard power so it's like trying to establish where those no's or those laters are coming from and what's the driver for those things um yeah i think you have to like do horrible things that outside consultants might do like power maps and you know it doesn't have to be that kind of that formal but like why is my boss saying i can't do technical debt even though he knows or she knows that we need to do it and then you so you have to look above and find some context and you have to look above and find some context and like what's the business doing is the business losing money like what's going on here and why are they behaving like that um and only with that sort of wider understanding can you even start to make a difference in that organization do you think the there is an onus on i mean how do we start when you when you have conversations with your own teammates how do you help them understand that or at least gain that perspective outside of saying like you're just going to need to figure out how to like navigate that over time but like you know there's always this illusion that the grass is green there's somewhere else and that company won't have any of these problems they'll just probably have a whole different set of problems right and so- yeah everyone's got their own organizational scar tissue right i mean <laughs> yeah um you know we, we've had that like i think for us it's about the organization has to actually care and i don't think you can fix that without power or understanding it and so in our organization we're really open about the 
finances of the business and how many new users we're getting and like because it's a small team we can do that but i think there are ways that bigger companies can do that you know i think if you have a reasonable justification for the way that you're behaving that isn't entirely fear-based then i think that's that goes a long way organizationally like i think a lot of decisions are made from fear and then justified i think as human beings we're very fear-driven beings so i think if you can take that fear and go okay right i'm just behaving this way because i'm scared that this is going to break or someone's going to think i'm not working or some you know any of these things and you see even big organizations operating out of fear so i think if you can operate out of a place without fear um, i think that really helps because then you you, 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 this is a guess of course everything's a guess like we don't know how the world works it's way too complex for us to understand but we think this feature is going to move user numbers this way and that's why we're doing this and if we don't ship a feature, then you know we're going to lose customers to our competitors, or just because they won't use it. Like, there's you have to have a justification that isn't just like ah, I'm scared. I want to be seen to be doing something. Right. That's good. That can give people and myself some things to kind of reflect on a little bit. One of my favorite things about having these these chats with people is that I'm often talking with different organizations, you know, in a sales capacity for my team, and you know they're coming with, well, we need X, but I'm like. But let's talk about your problems a little bit more, you know, like <laughs> and kind of get a little bit more context about like what's going on over, you know, who's. Tell me about your childhood. <laughs> who, yeah, exactly. You know, like who hurt you at the company or, or what do you think is hurting you as a company? And it's usually not the most obvious thing that you think it might be, ten, tends to be. There's usually a lot more things at play and or people that may no longer be there but left some damage along the way. Yes, absolutely. That happens so much. Like for the longest time, we didn't have stand-ups every morning. And like, it's because they got out of hand and were used as a tool of coercion for the noisier members of the team. So like people got allergic to them and then someone new joined and said, oh, why don't we have stand-ups? That seems like a good thing to do for a inverted commas agile team. And I was like, like, you know, you're completely right. And we should definitely do that. Um, But we're going to keep an eye on this particular ritual. It's about making your rituals work for you. That's another good point to think about is just because because something might not have worked in the past doesn't mean it won't, won't work in the future. And that's been a thing that I've needed to learn to accept over the years. Like there's these ebb and flows of like when we start using things and don't keep doing the same thing just because you've always done it. Uh, be willing to like get rid of some process and people can see that as like a breath of fresh air for a while until they until someone recommends it. I've also needed to learn to be like, not immediately respond when someone proposes an idea like that. Like, why don't we do stand-ups? Be like, well, we used to, and then we didn't. Like, they don't need to know the whole history of why it worked and didn't work. Like, let's give that a go, you know, and not treat it as like, a, oh, we someone else on the team that's no longer here for the last few years suggested we stop doing it. And they were right at the time. It felt right at the time. Don't do new things. So is there a non-software, non-technical book that you find yourself recommending to peers most often? Non-software. I mean, there's two. So in, in the last year, I sort of I started tracking my reading a bit more. Um, and so one book I really loved last year was a thing called The Overstory. I can't remember the name of the author. It's sort of an ecological story over time. And it was both mortifying and strangely comforting at the same time. And it was a wonderful, like, it's just a wonderful novel. And the other thing I recommend is finding the, the media uh, that makes you happy and it's you know people might call it a guilty pleasure, but it's just a pleasure. So like I like the um, Lee Child Jack Reacher books because they know exactly what they are, um, and I think there's they're almost parodic in their 
in their sort of it's like the littlest hobo if the littlest hobo was like six foot four and built built like a bodybuilder and was you know hitting people with his strong forearms and getting the girl and all that sort of like they're, they're cliche in the best way and very well written so i i love those as like as an escape hatch when i'm i've been reading too much sort of like self-help or business books <laughs> yeah yeah uh, you mentioned in the overstory. I read that probably about a year and a half ago. I I love that book. Um, it was just like I'm trying to remember the the name of the author. I think it's Richard Powers. Um, yes, Richard Powers. Yes, it's delightful and awful. Yeah, and it was one of the things that another made me think for where I happen to be, where I live in in Oregon, which is in the Pacific Northwest. You know, the timber industry is like historically a big thing here, and so it's. One of the reasons I moved here was because I'm like, I'm going to go save trees. So uh, there's a lot of different reasons that, you know, that book resonated in a lot of interesting, weird ways. But I, I love that book. So that was a so good recommendation there. For so it's a double recommendation, folks. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so where can listeners, you know, go to learn more about you and follow your thoughts and ruminations about software development? I'm sort of old school. I have a website which has got my name on it. So andycroll.com is probably the the best place to go. There's I have a newsletter that I send out ideally fortnightly but realistically slightly less than that um which has got like ruby tips in it and like if anything sort of special happens on top of that it's um it ends up in the little header on top of the useful on top of the useful writing hopefully the useful little ruby problem but yeah front first ruby friend is my please sign up to that if if you're in a in the ruby community and want to help and it's really not that hard and you can just be friendly to people and that goes a long way. That's wonderful. Yeah, I'll include links to that in the show notes for everybody. And it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Andy. Thank you so much for talking shop. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure to meet you.